Okay, thanks you for coming back. Last paper uh, of the conference. It's by Steve Kaplan from the University of Chicago. Some facts about CEO pay and corporate governance. Okay, thank you, uh, Jeff, and uh, thanks to the Cato Institute, and thanks to all of you who are here for the final paper. So I'm going to talk about common perceptions of <clears throat> CEO pay and corporate governance in the United States, talk about what the evidence is for those perceptions, and then talk about what the implications are uh, of the evidence. So what are the perceptions? You know, a lot of people will say CEOs are overpaid, uh, and there's a perception their pay keeps increasing. Uh, there's a perception CEOs are not paid for performance, and there's a perception that boards do not penalize CEOs for poor performance. And uh, you know, a few recent examples, the New York Times, you know, the top brass generally do much, much better than the rest of us you know, when times are good or bad. Uh, Forbes, which you know, wouldn't normally uh, be uh, anti-capitalism, says uh, our report will only fuel the outrage over corporate greed. Uh, and in a recent uh, Harvard Business Review, Mahir Desai, uh, who's a professor at Harvard Business School, you know, points to repeated governance failures as one of the twin crises of modern capitalism. So uh, these are recent perceptions, and there are you know, past perceptions. I think this is uh, pretty consistently uh, what you hear. Now, you know, are these perceptions accurate, and uh, what are the challenges uh, that are going to happen going forward? So in, in talking about what I'm going to talk about today, the recurring question is really to what extent is CEO pay and governance driven by the power of CEOs over their boards? So I think the, the perceptions are that CEOs control their boards and the CEOs are overpaid. There's an alternative view that I'll talk about where there's a competitive market for managerial talent that has CEOs being paid you know, perfectly appropriately. Uh, and then you know, there, there are presumably other forces you know, running around like political considerations and norms that may have some effect on pay and governance. So in, in addressing the perceptions, I'm really, to some extent, seeing how these three different explanations uh, support or don't support the evidence and the perceptions. And this is pretty specific on looking at these perceptions. Uh, if you're interested in a broader treatment of corporate governance, uh, there are two recent surveys that are terrific. Kevin Murphy just wrote one, uh, and Carolla and Dirk Genter wrote one, and uh, they are uh, both terrific and a little bit broader uh, than what I'm going to talk about today. So in thinking about CEO pay, remember there are two ways to look at pay. The first is grant date or estimated pay. This is the pay that shows up in the proxy statement. It is the pay that the board thinks it's giving to the CEO. And it's basically salary bonus, restricted stock value at grant date, and the expected value of options. That's different from what the CEOs actually get, which I'll call realized or actual pay. And it differs, realized pay differs in that they get the value of the options actually exercised, not the expected value. 
You can also measure restricted stock when it vests or when it's sold. And the number I'm going to use is actually imperfect because it's also measuring restricted stock at grant date, but it's a better measure of what the CEOs get than this estimated or grant date pay. And the grant date pay, though, that's the one that is really telling you what boards are doing. So if you're interested in governance, that, I think, is the right measure. So question, what has happened to average CEO pay of CEOs in the S&P 500 since 2000? Has it gone up? Has it been flat? Or has it gone down? This is, you know, over the last 10 years. And I've asked this question to various audiences. I asked it to uh, a group of uh, public company CFOs. Uh, I asked it to a group of corporate governance academics, both within the last year. And in both groups, I would say two-thirds set up, about 30% said flat, and a few people said down. So the perception that I had in the first slide is you know, not, it's not just sort of the you know, man on the street or woman on the street. It is people who are in the middle of this debate. Now, let me show you what the truth is. Average CEO pay at the S&P 500 companies is down by about 40% since 2000. This is inflation adjusted. And median pay uh, is about flat since 2000. So this view that pay keeps going up and up and up is just not true. Median is flat and average is quite a bit down. And so there you go. Um, average CEO pay actually has declined since 1998. 1998 to 2010, it's down, it's way down since 2000. So that's S&P 500 CEOs. You can look at non-S&P 500 CEOs. The median has moved up some. The average, again, has come down. Uh, and the numbers are a lot lower. It's $3.5 million average uh, versus the S&P 500 is about 10. So what about pay relative to the median household? So you're, always, you're also here that you know, CEOs are paid a huge amount relative to the average household. And again, you know, the average is today is about where it was in 1997-1998, the median about where it was in 2000-2001. So this up and up and up, it's really stopped. This was really a phenomenon that went through, you know, the 90s and then since 2000 it's it's pretty much stabilized. And uh, for the S&P, uh, the non-S&P 500 CEOs, again, average has come down a bit, median uh, up a bit. What about CEO turnover? Um, you know, if you're comparing uh, the pay, you're kind of assuming that the CEOs earn that pay for the same amount of time. And it turns out in work I did with Bernadette Minton, uh, and work that I think other people uh, have also found, uh, CEO turnover kind of popped up after the mid to late 90s, so that it's been running about 20% higher uh, in the last 10 years than it did in the early and mid 90s, and then it did in the 70s and 80s. So if you wanted to, to make kind of a, a comparison of 
you know, total expected comp and you want it to be apples and apples, you know, there's an argument for actually dropping the pay today by 20% relative to the pay in the 90s. And this is just uh, a look at that you see in the 92 to 98, it was sort of not over 15% in any one year. And uh, really since 2000, it's been over 15% uh, in a lot of years. So CEOs are not paid more and more, uh, and CEO tenures have declined. So a little bit different from the perceptions. But, you know, these numbers are still big, right? They're still paid a lot relative to the average household. And so, you know, maybe they're, they're still overpaid. And, you know, it's very hard to, to get a sense of that. So what I'm going to do is compare them to other similar groups. And what we know from, you know, the Piketty and size evidence is that the income share at the top has gone up a lot uh, since 1980. And uh, this is a very well-known graph. It went up, you know, it came down, went up, it peaked in 2007 and has since come down. Uh, and this is uh, a look at the last uh, 20 years where we have good compensation data. So the question I want to ask is how have the public company CEOs done, to, done relative to other people who make a lot of money who we know have also done well? And let's take a look. Um, and what I'm comparing now the 500 S&P 500 CEOs to the average taxpayer in the top 0.1%. So it's about 140,000 taxpayers. And again, you know, how have the CEOs done relative to other people in this you know, very well-paid group? And uh, this is the ratio. And what you see is, uh, it actually, the CEOs did a little bit better uh, from 94 to 2001. And then they've done quite a bit worse from 2001 to 2010. And CEOs relative to the top 0.1% today are about where they were in 1994. Uh, the non-S&P 500 CEOs, actually a little bit worse off. So what do you take from that? You know, the... CEOs are not the only ones who've earned a lot more. Uh, their relative pay relative to people in those top groups, you know, is basically the same, or maybe a little bit less. And uh, that just tells you pay increases have been systemic at the top end. The CEOs don't turn out to be hugely different. Um, what about the longer term? So here, there's no one time series that actually captures CEO pay. I was just looking at ExecuComp, which is nice because it has a nice 20-year time series. What I'm going to do is I'm going to staple together two other data sets to the ExecuComp data, and it's not a perfect stapling. You know, one of the data sets is Corolla's, and maybe she'll have something to say about that. Um, but I'm trying to go back to the 1930s, and I'm going to look at pay again relative to the average pay of the top 0.1%. And I'm also going to look at pay relative to the average company stock market value uh, because there you know, is a paper by Gebex and Landier who build a competitive model for talent in which pay depends on average firm size. And they predict that pay in a competitive market pay should go up with average firm size. So what do we see? Uh, 
pay relative to the top 0.1%? Well, in uh, 2010, it's about two times. CEO pay is about two times the average of the top 0.1%. It's about where it was in the 1930s. And in fact, the average over uh, this long sample period uh, is about two, and that's where it is today. So um, CEO pay kind of moves around, but historically, it's about twice the income of uh, the top 0.1%. Uh, and you can see some the puzzle, I guess, there is uh, why the ratios were so low in the uh, early and mid-80s and why the ratio was so high in the late 90s. It's kind of back today where it was or where it is on average. Um, now CEO paid a market value of uh, the average company. And uh, this is something, again, where Gebex and Landier said it should be flat. And uh, interestingly, uh, since 1960, it's been pretty flat. Before 1960, it was higher. So CEOs were actually overpaid relative to this competitive model, if you take it seriously, before 1960. But since then, it's been pretty flat. And this is, you can see the ratio 60 to 2010. And uh, actually in 2010, it's actually on the, the little bit the low side uh, of the last 50 years. So the bottom line, you know, it actually looks consistent with uh, Gebex and Landier since the 60s. Uh, the puzzle is why Gebex and Landier didn't work before the 60s and actually why it was higher rather than, than lower. So that's, you know, in the, you know, the long time series. Now let's look a little bit more specifically uh, about who earns more. And there's a really nice paper by Bakija, Cole, and Heim uh, who access IRS tax return data, and they get information on uh, the company or the, uh, the person's uh, employment. It's not perfect because the IRS you know, can't let, give you that good data legally, but they distinguish between uh, people who have income from salary, uh, and those are more likely to be executives in public companies, versus uh, executives who uh, get more in business income than in salary, uh, and these people are more likely to be in closely held businesses. And what you can see here uh, is that the closely held business executives saw their pay increase by more than the public executives or the salaried executives. And that's uh, you know, their share of the top 0.1%, but it's gone up much more in the closely held businesses. And this is the, the number or the percentage of the executives who are in the top 0.1%. And again, the big increase is in the closely held people. It's actually been quite a decline in the public executives. Now, now what does that mean? Why is that important? Um, well, if you're thinking of the managerial power story where these pay increases are driven by CEOs power over boards and boards are not doing their jobs and people are being overpaid, you would have kind of thought the result would be the opposite direction. In the closely held businesses, those are businesses where usually the owners are in charge and uh, there isn't an agency problem. So that's 
On the executive front, looks like the public company executives, again, done about the same as the top 0.1% over a long period of time. It's the private company executives have done better than the public company executives. What about another group that is sort of related? Uh, lawyers. You know, lawyers do business. They come from, you know, not exactly the same group as CEOs, but, you know, it's probably the same uh, group of undergrads. Uh, what's happened to pay at the top law firms? Well, look at the picture. Pay at the top law firms has more than doubled in real terms uh, over the last uh, 15, 20 years. And uh, how about law partners to uh, S&P 500 CEOs? You know, it's the same pattern. Started at six. The S&P 500 CEOs did better through 2000. And then they came back down. And today, uh, the S&P 500 CEOs are about the same place relative to law partners that they were uh, in 1994. Um, actually, the non-S&P 500 CEOs have done worse uh, relative to the law partners over that period. So again, CEOs are not the only ones who earn a lot. And the last comparison I'll show you, which is maybe a little bit unfair, uh, is to take the 25 top hedge fund managers and compare their pay to the pay of the 500 S&P 500 CEOs. And the hedge fund managers are a little unfair because some of that pay, a lot of that pay is fee income, some of the pay is their uh, return on their investment. Um, but the magnitudes are pretty stunning. So uh, what you see there is uh, before 2004, you know, the 25 top hedge fund managers earned about the same as all 500 S&P 500 CEOs which means the average hedge fund manager earned 20 times the average uh, S&P 500 CEOs. And those ratios just increased uh, after 2004. Uh, and uh, in 2010, it was four times. So that means that uh, 25 people earned four times 500, uh, which means the average earned 80 times, I think that's right if I'm doing my math correctly, uh, 80 times more. The average hedge fund manager that group did 80 times more than the S&P 500 CEO. So what does all this mean? Why did I show you all this? Pay increases have been pervasive at the very top. You've got these other groups, investors, lawyers, I didn't show you athletes, uh, have seen significant pay increases uh, where there is a competitive market for talent uh, and no agency problems exist. And the increases are at least as large as for the CEOs. You've got these private company executives with fewer agency problems who've increased by more than public company executives. And so, so it's just making the point that if you, you look at the high CEO pay as evidence of managerial power or capture, you've got to explain why these other groups who are really in a similar pool, not the athletes, but the other groups are, are I would say, a similar pool, why they've had uh, similar or either or higher growth in pay. So suggests that the market for talent uh, has been an important part of the increase in CEO pay, uh, and uh, that uh, those forces, you know, have bid up the pay uh, across sectors. And uh, you know, is this poor governance? You know, most evidence on governance is that governance has improved. Boards have gotten more independence. There's more institutional shareholder pressure. So it's hard, to, it's hard to see why, again, CEO pay 
hasn't grown any more than these other groups. Governance, if anything, has gotten better. And what does it leave you with? It really leaves you, at least me, with the idea that um, technological change and greater scale uh, increase the returns at the top. It's a Gebeck's Landier type story. And you can manage or apply talent to greater assets, to larger companies. Uh, the traders can trade larger sums of money. Uh, the entertainers or athletes can access larger audiences. And this seems a lot more or more consistent with the evidence than the managerial power story. So that's pay levels. What about whether CEOs are paid for performance? And uh, Josh Rao and I looked at uh, how CEOs were paid uh, relative to um, performance. And uh, one thing we did, we took the most highly paid CEOs uh, and compared them to the least highly paid CEOs. We did that within size class uh, because pay tends to increase with size. And what you find is that within every size quintile, uh, the highest compensation group, and this is, this is realized pay, uh, had much higher returns than the lowest paid group. So like if you look at uh, that first quintile, the smaller firms, the lowest paid CEOs, uh, three-year stock performance negative 20%, and the most highly paid CEOs 140% uh, stock performance, and that's industry uh, adjusted. So within any size class, you see the more highly paid people are the ones whose companies have performed best. You can do this one year stock performance, three years, five years, uh, you get the same result. And uh, that's in the cross section. You know, if you look at realized pay in the time series, uh, you see that realized pay actually also moves with the overall stock market. So again, there is pay for performance. Um, next question, uh, do boards monitor uh, or are CEOs penalized for poor performance? And uh, Bernadette Mitten and I in this paper on turnover found a strong relation of turnover to performance. Uh, and then in a more recent paper, uh, Genter and Llewellyn looked at CEO turnover in the S&P 500 or the S&P Execucomp database. And what they did is they took CEOs and looked at what their stock performance was over their first five years and then looked at how likely they were to be, uh, to remain or be fired. And what this shows is that CEOs in the bottom quintile of performance, again, performance relative to industry, 60% of them lost their jobs. CEOs in the top quintile, fewer than 20%. So there's a huge difference in turnover based on performance, meaning not only is there pay for performance, but it's also the case that if you don't perform, you know, your job is, is at risk these days. And they then, you know, distinguished between uh, dependent and independent boards, and, and independent boards had more independent uh, directors and more stock ownership on the board, and those differences widened. That uh, if you were uh, in the bottom 
uh, quintile, like 80% of the time you lost your jobs. Uh, if you were in the top quintile, only 10%. So what's the evidence on the perceptions? You know, the perceptions are, are I think, to some extent, misperceptions. Uh, CEO pay has declined uh, since 2000. Uh, average CEO pay is more or less at historical levels. Uh, and uh, public company executives have actually not done as well as private company executives. Uh, it looks like CEOs are paid for performance. And you can ask whether the pay for performance could be stronger. You know, I don't really, that's a hard question. Some people think pay for performance can be stronger, although some people think it should be weaker. You know, in the finan you know for financial companies, there are some people who would make that argument. So I'm not weighing in on that, but I am weighing in on the fact that there is quite a lot of pay for performance. Uh, boards uh, do penalize CEOs for poor performance and turnover's gone up. So, you know, don't listen to me. What do shareholders think? Um, Dodd-Frank actually mandated that all publicly traded companies uh, needed to have a shareholder vote on the compensation of the top five executives. And those votes are known as say on pay votes. Uh, we had the first votes in 2011. And uh, if you believe the perceptions and the managerial power story, you would expect you know, a lot of negative votes. If you think it's a market for talent, you'd expect positive votes. And what were the votes? 98% of the companies got majority approval in 2011. Uh, that approval rating ratio is about the same this year. So it wasn't a fluke last year. And if you look at, you know, the approval ratings, 80% of companies received more than 80% approval. So what does that say? The largely positive votes are not consistent with the perceptions, uh, and they're consistent with a stronger role for a competitive market for talent than for managerial power. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, there are bad apples, and I'm sure there's some exercise of managerial power uh, the say on pay votes give you some avenue to affect that, and the people who got companies that got the low votes uh, have had to make some adjustments on what they pay people. So last thing, and this is always dangerous because it's a moving target, how have companies performed? Uh, if we had this governance crisis, you would expect you know, performance has been awful, and uh, you know, the stock market has been up and down. Obviously, we just had a financial crisis and a deep recession. But what's really interesting is operating margins, which is basically cash flow to sales for the S&P 500 companies, is at the highest it's been in the last 20 years, and actually higher than it's been for quite some time. And uh, you know, debt levels are uh, relatively low, in uh, cash we know is relatively high. So if you look on an operating basis and that the green line at the top is the operating margin, uh, you see the companies have actually delivered on performance, which is probably another reason why the say on pay votes were so positive. And uh, why is it not going forward again? There we go. Uh, so the companies have performed well. I mean, it's also true that uh, the uh, National, you know, the NIPA accounts, you know, corporate profits are at an all-time high uh, as a percentage of GDP or, you know, historically very high. 
And again, that's consistent with this good performance. The NIPA accounts, of course, include both private and public companies, so it's not uh, completely comparable. So bottom line, the three perceptions uh, that I talked about, the reality is a lot more complicated, uh, and the evidence is at odds with the perception. Uh, Kevin Murphy, in his summary, you know, or in his uh, survey, does say it's complicated, and you know, you can't disagree with that. Uh, it's likely that efficient contracting or market for talent, uh, managerial power, uh, and political issues coexist. And uh, you know, there have clearly been governance failures and payout liars where managerial power is exercised. And that leads to these negative perceptions. Uh, the numbers are very large relative to the median household. And that also uh, is very um, you know, hard to understand, I think, in many cases and leads to these perceptions. Um, but that said, you know, there looks like a meaningful part of pay is driven by this market for talent. It's moved with it. Uh, pay is tied to performance and boards hold CEOs accountable. So what does this mean? It means, you know, boards face a hard problem. Uh, the market for talent, you know, pushes them to reward top people a lot. Um, the pay levels are high. Um, but... You know, you want to you know, make sure you get the people you want, but the combination of these very visible high pay levels, some examples of bad behavior, and a weak economy creates you know, real criticism, and you see that uh, in the business press uh, pretty regularly. So the challenge is you know, to pay enough to retain who you want and pay for performance, but at the same time deal with these real political uh, and public constraints. And uh, with that, uh, let me make one prediction and then I'll stop. Um, if this analysis is correct, what do, you, what do you predict going forward? Well, I'm saying CEO pay moves with other top incomes and one group, the finance incomes, you know, appear to have declined or are declining. That's actually going to put some downward pressure on CEO pay, I would think, over the next few years. Uh, you've got political forces and say on pay votes probably exerting some downward pressure. And then you've got the economy and the stock market. And when those decline, you also see downward pressure. When they improve, you see upward pressure. So I would guess that, you know, in the next year or two, you're not likely to see big increases in CEO pay. If anything, you'll see declines if the economy, you know, depending on what the economy and stock market do. But I would imagine when the economy and stock market do improve, you'll see some upward pressure again. And uh, there you go. And uh, thank you. Thank you very much. First discussion is Corolla Friedman from Boston University. Show up back there. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me to discuss this paper. I learned a lot. Um, so, um, and thank you, Steve, for being so kind about my own work. <laughs> so let me um, let me set up the the uh, facts that that Steve has presented 
uh, in sort of the broader discussion on what drives CEO compensation. For the past 30 years or 20 years, the literature on executive pay has expanded, and it's still a very heated and inconclusive debate where we're trying to understand whether the high levels of pay and the way in which compensation is structured, uh, and in that I'm referring in part as, uh, to pay for performance, is really a result of hypothesis one, which is a result of a competitive labor market for talented CEOs and a result of efficient contracting when we're talking about the structure of pay, or in the other camp, in hypothesis two, CEO levels of pay and the structure as well are the result of what we broadly call managerial power. Rather, the view that CEOs have completely dominated boards and are able to set their own pay and therefore they're overpaid. And as Steve has pointed out, I think to a large extent, public opinion tends to side with hypothesis two, and uh, this is, as I said, within academics, a very heated, still inconclusive debate. There are a lot of academics that would say most of the evidence sides with, with the managerial power hypothesis. So what is Steve's view, both within this paper, which is to a large extent uh, a, a compendium of um, his very influential other um, other papers. Well, I think if I, if I try to interpret, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that these perceptions that, um, that uh, are the support of hypothesis two, of the managerial power view uh, of executive pay, are to a large extent driven by uh, some cases of corporate failure and uh, big outliers in pay. And, and so that we look at these cases, they're undeniable, they have impacted some firms, uh, but then uh, we basically extend them as if they could explain why the pay for the median CEO has changed over time. And so Steve's view is that the facts, when we actually look at the data, are probably more consistent with the first hypothesis, that CEO pay is basically optimal. It's the result of a competitive labor market and of, to some extent, efficient contracting. Uh, now, this is really important. And the reason why I think trying to determine which one of these hypotheses contributes the most or it's behind what drives the, the trends for the typical executive is really important is because these perceptions are basically behind the types of policies, the types of accounting regulations, disclosure regulations that, that we institute. And we've often seen historically that these policies have created distortions and that they end up having unintended consequences as well. So trying to understand what's behind the rise in, in CEO pay is, I think, at the core of what this conference is about, really important. So, Steve just presented you probably 40 graphs and, and uh, not quite, quite so many tables. So what I thought I was gonna do in the beginning is to basically give you two slides as a summary of what the perceptions and the facts are. The paper is titled Perceptions, Facts, and Challenges. I think it's very, very convincing when it goes to the perceptions and the facts. The challenges are a little bit less well described, so I'm gonna end with what I think are my challenges or my, my view of the challenges. So what are the perceptions and what are the facts? Let's separate them into two. Let's first talk about the perceptions and facts when it, uh, that relate to the level of executive compensation. And so the perception is that executive pay has increased uh, sharply in the recent years. And by recent years, we're talking mostly from 1993 
2010, which is the period for which we have large available data sets that we can all download and look at, and they're going to capture about 1,500 um, firms, in the large publicly traded firms in the U.S. So what's the evidence? Has executive pay increased? Well, what Steve showed you is that it increased somewhat during the 1990s, but since then, uh, it has been flat if you look at the median or declining if you look at the mean. Now, looking at the median and the mean, uh, it's very different, right? And this is something that we need to pay attention to. When we, if we think that um, what we care about is how has the compensation of the typical executive changed, then we should focus on the median. And that's what I tend to focus on in my own work. Uh, the mean, in contrast, is going to be very largely affected by some outrageous cases, by some cases of extremely high pay. So one thing that comes out of the graphs that Steve uh, showed um, but didn't emphasize so much, and he did emphasize this in the paper a little bit more, is that we saw the mean become very, very high during the 1990s, and that is what it has declined. So if we're thinking about corporate governance, well, Maybe there were a few cases of extremely high pay that were happening in the 1990s, and now that is part of what has declined, whereas the, me the median has stayed relatively flat. Okay, so those are the facts. The second perception is that CEOs are overpaid. And this is a really hard perception to try to deal with, right? What's the, the opposite view? Well, that compensation is optimal and that the level of pay is optimal. And that requires having a sense of what the productivity of CEOs is and what their outside options are. This is intrinsically really, really hard. So what are the facts that we can bring to bear on this point? Well, as Steve showed, the pay of CEOs is high. That is undeniable. But does that mean that they're overpaid? So the three pieces of evidence that he's showing us is that pay has not really been increasing, for example, if we focus on the, on the median uh, in the last 10 years. And if we actually were to adjust it for the increase in the probability that a CEO will lose their jobs earlier than it was 20 years ago, then we would say that their effective pay has actually been declining. Um, the second piece of evidence is by comparing the pay of CEOs to the compensation in, in other occupations. And this is important if we think that labor markets are integrated, which is an if, and I'll come back to this later on. Uh, but it's sort of a way to try to guess whether outside options would be. And, and so by looking at the compensation of executives in privately held firms, in hedge funds, lawyers, and so on, Steve uh, is showing us that the pay of CEOs is not completely out of whack. It's high, but it's also high for other professions. Uh, the final point is that pay has been relatively constant to the market value of firms, or the view that firms have grown, we need to pay for talent, and that's why executive pay has increased. And I'll, I'll have some issues with the timing of this, but, but let's, let's stop at this. So these are the three facts, right? So you put them these together, Steve says, well, it doesn't look like um, CEOs are overpaid, but it is intrinsically difficult. There is another set of facts that relate to pay for performance. The first perception is that executive pay is not linked to performance. And so the pieces of evidence that, that um, we bring to bear on this is that um, for firms that are of similar size, the pay is actually high 
after years of good performance, much higher than if the firm doesn't do well. The second uh, piece of evidence that um, is often uh, provided in the executive pay literature, and I'll show you some evidence on this since it's actually not in the paper, is that the wealth of CEOs is actually increasingly tied to the performance of firms, mostly through their holdings of stock and stock options. Um, Okay, the last perception is that boards do not punish CEOs for poor performance. And then uh, what we've seen is that in the recent years, CEO turnover has increased, and more so the, the probability of turnover is actually increasing on poor firm performance. If you don't do well, you're gonna get fired, particularly if the boards are independent. So if you're the CEO in a company in which corporate governance seems stronger by the measures that we usually have. So perceptions and facts. So can we argue with the facts? Well, I don't think Steve made any mistake putting these facts together. These are the stylized facts. It's really hard to argue with these facts, particularly when your own data and your own words are being quoted to make the <laughs> points. So I won't argue with them. Uh, I actually, more than this, I think this is quite a remarkable um, set of facts that are actually important for us to know and to think about this market. They're very instructive. So it's very nice that um, he's done the work of putting all of these facts together. Um, so what can we say about them? Well, I think what we can argue with potentially is the interpretation of these facts. Um, so am I gonna argue with them? Well, I'm gonna tell you what someone that was in the managerial power camp could say by looking at these facts. So you see the italicized if there, then I'll tell you what I think. So um, two, two main perceptions, right? So what comes out from Steve, the interpretation is that of the paper is that CEO pay is high, but the CEOs are not overpaid. They're just paid whatever it's optimal, whatever it's driven by the competitive labor market. So what could we say if we thought that it was just rent extraction by looking at these facts? Well, when we're looking at trends, it's actually fairly difficult to know exactly what's the factor that's driving them. It's possible that the level of pay uh, is influenced by the market uh, to some extent, but it, it is possible that there is still a sizable component, not just a few outliers, but a sizable component of the trends that we're, we've seen that are driven by rent extraction. And indeed, we have new uh, theoretical and empirical papers that are trying to argue that if a few firms overpay, uh, for example, smaller firms overpay their CEOs by some amount to try to attract better CEOs, that's gonna ramp up compensation in all other firms, right? Because other firms are also competing for talent. So we might see the same types of correlations, but to some extent they're driven by uh, both governance and competition for talent, okay? And in that case, they would be sort of, it's hard to say whether it's overpaid. They're still competing for talent, the Wonder Brother guys. The second point is that um, if uh, we're um, saying that CEOs are, are not overpaid, we're sort of thinking about a labor market that's competitive. And the question there is whether the market for CEOs, it's truly a competitive labor market in the way that we would think about uh, a market for blue collar workers or high school students and so on. And so um, it's possible 
Right, and part of the point might be, well, we have lots of potential CEOs and we're gonna think who to hire and more and more we're hiring CEOs from outside firms. But other people have the view that the way in which we hire, firms hire CEOs, it's actually driving this market not to be so competitive, that firms, by the time they're trying to think who to replace for their CEOs, end up having three candidates. These three candidates are gonna be able to extract a lot of rents from firms. So I think we need to understand a little bit uh, more deeply how the labor market for CEOs truly works to try to think about what their outside options really are, what is their, their optimal compensation. The other point uh, is that pay has um, increased for other occupations for which the managerial power, the rent extraction hypothesis, is really unlikely. So if pay has increased both for CEOs of publicly traded firms and for lots of other occupations for which we cannot say that rent extraction uh, has been the main factor, then the argument is it can't be that rent extraction is what explains the pay for CEOs. Okay, well, we can flip this argument on its head and say, but look, the corporate governance of publicly traded firms are differ different. We have other types of agency conflicts. The performance of CEOs is unobservable. So perhaps we could think of different explanations. Now, you know, that's a big perhaps. Uh, to the extent that we're looking at CEOs of privately held companies, I think that's, that's probably a much better comparison group. But at, at their core, these are really difficult questions to address, right? In part because we don't see the productivity of CEOs. We don't know what their outside options are very well. We don't know their characteristics to basically figure out what the optimal pay for, pay for performance would be. So do I think that these are the most likely interpretations? Well, no. And part of that is coming from uh, my work on uh, long-run trends in, in executive pay, some of which uh, Steve uh, showed you, and I'll show you a, a few others. So look, we worry a lot about executive pay. This is always in the press. It has been in the press for a really long time. Since firms became big at the turn of the 20th century, the separation of ownership and control has been a big deal. And all we need to do is to go back and, and read Burley and Means and, and see this. So executive compensation is really a long-term concern. So let me just, Steve, show you some perceptions. Um, I'll show you some others. So, okay, so uh, here's a quote that says, well, we have very lavish stipends and bonuses. And when do you think this quote was made? Think about it, this is from 33, okay? Then uh, another quote describes uh, the bull market bringing huge paper profits mostly through stock option opulence. Any sense? It's not the 1990s, it's 55. And this is what the Wall Street Journal was quoting. We're talking about multi-million compensation packages, that's 92. More than ever, it pays to be a top executive, that's 2007. Perceptions are perceptions. The truth is this, this is what our data shows. So painstakingly, we collected data from about 101 corporations that reflect how executive pay for the top three executives in some of the largest firms in the US, so this is a relatively small sample, probably representative of the largest 300 firms. So I'm showing you here the median total compensation, that means the compensation of an executive in 150th largest firms, has really increased over time. 
If you look at the changes between 1950 and 1970 for the total level of pay, that means salaries, bonuses, long-term incentives, and the, the Black-Scholes value of stock options granted would have increased in 25 years by 15%. If you look at the trend in 1990, the increase would have been 130%. Okay, big differences over time. Also, big differences in the structure. We start seeing a lot of stock options in the 1980s and 1990s. If we were to extend this, we would see a drop in stock options and an increase in restricted stock. Pay for performance has also increased over time. Oh, let me, let me point something. Things start changing in the 1970s when it comes to a level of pay. Similarly, still seeing some changes in the 1970s or 1980s when it comes to the pay for performance. The pay of CEOs in the 80s and 90s was much stronger tied, the wealth of CEOs, much stronger tied to the performance of their firms. The final point is that many other things have changed over time. Uh, if you look at where CEOs were replaced from in the 1970s, only about 15% of replacements came from outside the firm. Firms were primarily tapping their own internal talent to be CEOs. When we looked at the early 2000s, the numbers are close, close to 33%. Lots of things are changing, and they're changing around the 1970s. Okay, so around the 1970s, we have the growth in real pay, we have the widening of the distribution, and one point that I wanna stop on is the last bullet point that says strong correlation between the compensation of executives and the size of the market. And this is going back to the Gabel and Die point. Uh, I'm gonna defer with Steve. I don't think that this has remained flat since the 1960s. Uh, what Gabriel Landier says is you're, if you're competing for talent, then the pay of CEOs should move one-to-one -one with the pay of the typical firm, of the average firm in the economy, okay? Um, yes, if you look at a graph, it might look that it starts in the 1960s. If you do regressions, that coefficient gives you basically a coefficient of one. So you run the CEO, the compensation on the size of the typical firm, controlling for a bunch of other things, you get a coefficient of one starting in 1975, okay? If you do that within my data from 36 to 75, you get a coefficient of 0.1. It's tiny, okay? So that has really, really changed. And that is something that we need to think about when we're thinking about what explains the compensation. Why is it that there was a trend, a break in the trends in the 1970s? So we can think that a combination of uh, uh, firm scale and the market for talent, it's what's driving the growth in CEO pay in the 1980s. Um, but what happened earlier? The trends are really different. In the 1950s and in the 1960s, firms grew dramatically. And as you saw, CEO compensation was flat. It did not change. It was very different. So perhaps since the level of CEO pay has moved in the same way that income inequality has in this profession, we need to take a hint from the literature in income inequality and start thinking a little bit more broadly. Start thinking about executive pay being a result of an interaction between scale effects, corporate governance regulations, and really thinking about what the relative supply and demand for talent is, right? After all, that's what we do when we think about scale bias technological change tricky because it's hard to know what the labor market for executives is. So 
what is it? Is it competitive market or managerial power? It's complicated. At its core, if we're trying to understand what has driven the trends for the typical executive, I'm going to side with Steve. I don't think that I've seen very convincing evidence that the managerial power uh, story can explain the changes in the trend of CEO pay for the typical executive, for median CEO pay. Yes, it can explain outliers. Yes, it can explain some forms of pay that we see or egregious behaviors like backdating of stock options. But those things are relatively small in the big scheme of things when we're talking about the long run trends. Now, my issue with these two camps is that these two hypotheses are really not mutually exclusive. And this is also what Kevin Murphy said in his recent review. More than that, I think this debate from an academic perspective has been a little bit counterproductive for research. And this is sort of was the very disappointing and frustrating aspect that we discovered when we did a recent survey. That basically the work in executive pay has transformed into a series of papers that try to come up with either a competitive or a managerial power view for any real world aspect of compensation contracts. Take peer groups, right? So we said CEO pay relative to a group of peers. Um, and we can think of that as being uh, rent extraction because we pick the best possible peers to bump up the compensation of the CEO. But other papers would say, no, we look at the peers so that we determine what the labor market for these guys really is. We need to know their outside option. And this is where we are. One paper here, one paper there, and it's really hard to know what to make of them. So what are the challenges? I think the challenge for theorists uh, is to produce testable implications based on micro-fundamentals that, that will differ between these two approaches. I think the challenge for empirical work is to start thinking a little bit about whether these theories matter more in some firms for some executives than for others. Can we really account how much of the changes that we're seeing in the micro data are driven by one story or the other? And can we think about what the effect of other forces, for example, changes in regulation that have to do with tax policy, accounting practices, disclosures matter? It's really hard to think about just the scale story and explain why we switched from uh, uh, stock options to restricted stock in, in the early 2000s, or why when tax policies made it very attractive to have restricted stock in the 1950s, all of a sudden you saw stock options being granted. These things actually matter. So I'm going to finish with this. I think thinking a little bit uh, about these challenges and bringing the, the effect of uh, regulation was something that I, I was missing. Uh, in the paper. So I came up with my own list of challenges. I think the first one is what I was just saying. It's important to have a better understanding of the interactions between efficient contracting managerial power and regulations. It's complicated, but that is the reality, and we need to do better work at pulling them all together. I think it would be helpful to have a better knowledge of how the labor market for executives really works. If we know more about the hiring practices, promotions, their careers, where do they go, that might help us guide both their models, right? Moving f farther from just that simple assignment, a sort of Rosen-style model that Gabe and Landier have written, and it's very uh, influential. And, and I think also these facts are what are behind some of our claims that, that you know, that uh, looking at um, Finance, for example, it's the, it's the relevant outside option. We need to, to know this, I think, a little bit um, 
uh, better based on data. Now, two other things that didn't come out earlier is that one, one thing is I think we need to have a better assessment of the distortions that are introduced by the structure of contracts. We used to think that incentive pay was too low. Whenever we look at pay for performance, we think, look, it's really low, more is better. If we find higher correlations between the wealth of CEOs and performance, we say we're doing better. Um, I think that's based on Murphy's and Jensen's very influential paper in 92 that said that CEOs were paid as bureaucrats. But it's possible, too, that in some aspects, incentives are too high, right? That are creating distortions for pumping stock prices in the short run. That's a difficult question because uh, whether incentives are optimal depends on, on things that we don't observe, and it's hard to do it costly, but it's nonetheless very important. The final point is that the more recent papers that have been able to separate firm fixed effects from executive fixed effects show that most of the variation in the level of compensation and in the level of pay for performance are actually driven by manager fixed effects, by the executive fixed effects. It's not about firms, it's about people or perhaps about the interaction between these two. So to the extent that we are matching executives and firms, part of that might be there as well. But I think understanding why it is in the executive fixed effects that more of the variation is at, whether it's talent or their ability to extract rents or anything else, it's actually really important. Okay. Great, thank you very much. <laughs> Second discussant is Luke Taylor from the University of Pennsylvania. All right, thank you. Uh, I've got to say I'm very happy to be here discussing a paper by one of my old graduate school advisors. And uh, uh, I should say that I do have this special loyalty to Steve, but don't worry, I, I'm, I'm very willing to dish out a little payback, uh, <laughs> if you will. But, but the truth is that there's not a lot of room for payback in this paper. This paper is a collection of, of descriptive empirical facts. And, it's, and, and I believe the facts, and I also mostly believe Steve's interpretations of the facts. I think Corolla did a really nice job of pointing out some areas where there might be alternative interpretations for certain facts. I think that the view in this paper will be very controversial to people working outside this area of research and especially in the general public. But I think the facts and even the interpretations won't come as a surprise to people doing research in this area. As Steve pointed out, he's mainly surveying existing research in this area, including a lot of his own uh, prior research. Uh, what I think this paper's contribution really is, is I think the paper does a great job of communicating some, re some of the recent research on these topics to the general public. And I think the paper does a really great service by doing that. Uh, I, there are really two parts of my comments today. The first part is to provide, to show you some more facts about corporate governance. As Steve pointed out, there, he's just scratching the surface of a very large literature on these topics. Uh, Corolla's uh, uh, survey article covers uh, other parts of the literature. And I'm just going to show you a few facts that I think are especially interesting. And in the second part of my comments, I'll, I'm calling this facts are great, but models help too. Here I'm going to try to make the case uh, for theory. The, the first fact I'm going to show you, I, I think, is, is one of the most crucial facts for understanding corporate governance, but I think it requires some motivation. And so here's the big picture. Corporate governance is about solving a principal agent conflict. Up here, you have the shareholders. They own the firm. They can't run the firm themselves, so they have to hire these managers, including the CEO, to run the firm. 
And the question is, how can we get these managers to run the firm in the interests of shareholders, given that the managers have, may, may have diverging interests of their own? And the usual solution to this principal agent conflict is to provide the managers with strong incentives. For instance, we may tie their compensation to the performance of the firm. We can threaten to fire them if the company does badly. And we can also just monitor the managers directly. In particular, the shareholders hire the board of directors to monitor the, the, the uh, top managers. For instance, uh, before the CEO makes a big decision like acquiring a company, the CEO is going to have to get approval most of the time from the board of directors. It also falls on the board to provide the CEO with a good compensation contract. The board sets the level of pay, and the board is kind of setting the, the level of incentives that the CEO faces here. But that begs the question then, who's making sure that boards are doing their job in shareholders' interest? After all, directors are themselves agents who may have their own uh, uh, diverging interests. So really what's going on here is that there's a second layer of principal-agent con uh, conflict, this one between shareholders and the board. So how do we solve this second principal-agent conflict? Well, we, in theory, we can solve it in as, the same way as the first. We can give directors strong incentives. For instance, we typically make directors hold shares in the firm. Uh, so that their wealth is tied to the firm's performance. And, and we can monitor the board directly. For instance, we can choose who sits on the board. We can replace directors. But the question then is, well, who, who, is, who is monitoring the board? And who is making sure that directors have the, the right level in, of incentives? And here there's a problem. The problem is that if the typical shareholder is small, then the shareholder doesn't have much of an incentive to figure out what's going on in the company and to intervene if what's going on is badly. So if you're like me, your investments are diversified across thousands of companies. My ownership of any single company is tiny. I have very little incentive to figure out what is going on with any given board of any company in my portfolio. So I don't have much incentive to monitor the board. So this is a potential problem. One solution is a government solution. The government could uh, set rules that, that make sure that the boards have the right level of incentives. And we could have regulators uh, monitoring boards. And that way, when a small investor like me invests in a company, I know that I'm, quote unquote, buying a safe product. Just like when I go to the pharmacy and buy a drug, I know that I'm buying a safe drug because of FDA oversight. Of course, we all know there are problems with the government solution. And the good news is we don't need a government solution because there's a market solution here. And the market solution is to put a block holder at the top of the picture. The block holder is a shareholder who owns a lot of shares in the company. That block holder is going to have a strong incentive to figure out what's going on inside the company and to intervene in the board if what's going on is bad. The good news here is that most firms have block holders. And these block holders have a strong incentive to monitor the board. So here's some, some recent facts from a paper called The Myth of Diffuse Ownership in the United States. Uh, Cliff Holderness finds that 96% of US public companies have a block holder, defined as a shareholder who owns at least 5% of the shares. Block holders own 39% of a firm on average. Three times as many firms have a majority block holder as have no block holder at all. 
ownership is less concentrated in larger firms, but even if you just look at the largest firms, the S&P 500 companies, 89% of these firms have a block holder. And ownership concentration is similar in US uh, as it is outside of the US. What these facts tell me is that there's a lot of hope here. Since there are block holders, since block holders are pervasive, this tells me that uh, there are shareholders out there who are paying attention and who are, who are monitoring boards of directors. So that this is good news for me as a small shareholder because I can free ride off of the governance services that block holders are providing. So that's fa additional facts number one. Facts number two, this is about what happens to CEOs when they're fired. How costly is it to be fired? Kaplan shows that CEOs of poorly performing companies are more likely to leave the firm, and presumably a lot of these CEOs were fired. But how costly is it to get fired? If it's not costly to be fired, then the threat of dismissal, it doesn't provide a very strong incentive to managers. So here's some facts. The first facts are about separation pay. When a CEO leaves a firm, he gets a separation payment. And the average separation payment is $9.5 million. And this is from a paper by Goldman and Wong, who have data on 609 CEO departures from S&P 500 firms from 1993 to 2007. Is $9.5 million a lot of money for these executives? Well, $9.5 million, it's roughly 290% of these executives' annual salary. Now, this number, 9.5, it pulls together CEOs who left the firm voluntarily, like in a retirement, along with the CEOs who were fired. In a separate paper by David Yermak, uh, uh, Yermak shows that separation pay is several times larger for CEOs who are fired as opposed to CEOs who left the firm voluntarily. So these uh, numbers suggest to me that separation pay for dismissed CEOs is pretty big. This softens the blow from being fired. And it weakens the incentive that the threat of dismissal provides to these executives. Um, the other facts are about future employment. One cost of being fired is that it can be hard to find your next job. And uh, Fee and Hadlock have this nice paper where they collect data on uh, S&P 500 CEOs from 93 to 98 who left their job. And they track what happened to these CEOs next. And actually, they look at not just CEOs, but other uh, top execs, too. Uh, one fact is that if you look at executives under the age of 60 who are forced out of the firm, only 34% of them find work, future work, in an executive role. For executives under the age of 60 who left the firm as part of a scandal, only 13% of them find future work in an executive role, although now we're down to a very small sample size of just 16 and if you look at the CEOs who leave the firm and become the CEO of a different firm, their new firm, uh, the median new firm, is 90% smaller than their previous firm. And one of the most well-established facts in this literature is that if you're working for a smaller firm, if you're the CEO of a smaller firm, you're getting paid a lot less. So these facts together suggest to me that there are costs of being fired in the sense that it's, once you're fired, it's harder to find high-quality future employment. So here are just a few extra facts about how costly it is to be fired. The third facts are, are about say on pay and what's called a shareholder spring. Uh, Kaplan just showed us that 98% of US, large US firms 
received majority support in say on pay votes in 2011. But say on pay went into effect in the United States only in 2011. And there's some anecdotal evidence, at least out there, that suggesting that the data from 2012 are going to look quite differently. So here's this quote from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, they write, it's being called the shareholder spring. In the US, a majority of Citigroup shareholders voted last month against the bank's pay package for its senior executives, though the packages ultimately remained unchanged. Uh, in Britain, uh, Andrew Moss, CEO of a UK-based insurer, uh, resigned within days of losing a similar advisory vote on executive pay. Other companies, from Barclays to Credit Suisse, have seen large minorities of their shareholders vote, shareholders vote against their executive pay plans. In short, I think it's going to be really interesting to revisit this issue of say on pay once we have data from 2012, uh, because these 2012 data may look quite different. Uh, fourth facts are about the choice of compensation peer groups that Corolla started to talk a little bit about. Here's how this works. Directors on the board, along with hired compensation consultants, uh, typically benchmark the level of CEO pay against a group of peer firms. So here's an example of how it worked for Pfizer in 2006. They stated, Pfizer stated that the compensation committee sets midpoint salaries, target bonus levels, and target annual long-term incentive award values at the median of a peer group of pharmaceutical companies and a general industry comparator group of Fortune 100 companies. So what were, what, who was in this peer group? Well, the pharma peer group looked kind of like you would expect it to look. It, that peer group included Abbott Labs, Amgen, Merck, and so on. If you look, though, at the industry comparator group, it, it looks odd. It, it includes companies like Microsoft, Walt Disney, Wells Fargo, and General Motors. Uh, and I should say that the industry comparator group, it doesn't include all Fortune 100 companies. It's some strange subset of Fortune 100 companies. The issue here is that the choice of peer group is totally subjective, and it's at the firm's discretion. The potential governance problem is that boards may be able to cherry pick the peer group in order to set CEO compensation at wh wherever they want it to be. So there's this nice paper on, on, on this issue by Faulkner and Yang. They collected data on firms' choice of peer groups. And what they find is that firms do tend to choose highly, pay, uh, highly paid peers to justify their high level of CEO compensation. So here's the comparison they make. They, they compare, first of all, the peers that actually got chosen. They compare them to a, a quote unquote objective peer group that the researchers have chosen based on the size of the firm, the industry it's in, and, and several traits of the CEO. And the result is that total CEO pay was $470,000 higher in group one than in group two. Uh, in terms of percent, uh, basically pay in the peer group was 5.6% 5 5 higher than in the quote unquote objective peer group. So this cherry picking effect seems to be especially strong when the peer group is smaller. In other words, when, it, when you would think that more cherry picking has happened. And it's also stronger when the CEO is the chairman of the board, when the CEO has longer tenure, and when directors are busier serving on, on multiple boards. Thanks. Uh, and these are all proxies for weak governance. So the bottom line they give in their paper is that CEOs can wield power over the level of pay, 
via the choice of these compensation peer groups, especially in the firms that have weak governance. So the way this ties back to Steve's paper is that, you know, Steve does point out that there are some bad apples. There are governance failures, there are pay outliers, but he suggests that the, the, these governance abuses are really just kind of isolated cases. It's not hard, though, to find uh, uh, cases of weak governance that are much more widespread, and this is one such example. So that's it for facts. Now, the, the second part of my comments, this is the part about theory. Facts are great, but models help too. And I think models can help us in two ways. First of all, to interpret facts, it often helps to have a model. And I'll try to give you a, a quick example uh, about how entrenched our CEOs. This is from a 2010 paper of mine called Why Are CEOs Rarely Fired? Evidence from Structural Estimation. Models also help because models sometimes tell us surprising counterintuitive lessons about what good governance looks like. Uh, and I'm probably gonna have to skip the example there, which was on pay for luck. All right, so example one, how entrenched are CEOs? If you look at data from 1970 to 2006, you'll see that 2% of CEOs are fired per year on average. So caveat number one, total turnover is much higher. But the typical CEO turnover event is a voluntary turnover rather than a forced turnover. And caveat number two is that this rate, this 2% rate has gone up a lot in recent years, as Kaplan pointed out. So the, my goals here, so, so if you look at this 2% rate, 2% seems low, right? It seems like it, it's tempting to conclude from that 2% rate that, that boards aren't doing their job. Uh, but really the literature doesn't give us a lot of guidance over, over whether 2% is a big number or a small number. In particular, it's not clear what firing rate we should expect from a well-functioning board. So the goal of this paper is to provide a, a model that gives us a benchmark for whether 2% is a lot of firings or little. Uh, and also, if there is evidence of entrenchment, to quantify how much shareholder value is at stake. So the benchmark here is a model about a board that has to decide each year whether to fire its CEO or not. There are differences in ability across CEOs and the board faces a trade-off because on one hand, firing a low ability CEO is good for the firm's future profits, but on the other hand, firing the CEO is costly. The catch is that we can't directly observe a CEO's ability. We're learning gradually over time about CEO ability. And I'm gonna estimate the model with data on turnover and firm profitability. Uh, here are the, the, the main results. Number one, we can say that a 2% firing rate is low in the sense that if you want to produce a 2% firing rate, the board has to behave as if firing the CEO costs at least $200 million. Uh, second, I find evidence of entrenchment. Boards are behaving as if firing the CEO costs $200 million, but really it costs much less to fire a CEO. And this gap between the perceived cost and the actual cost of firing a CEO simply reflects that uh, boards find it very unpleasant to fire a CEO for, for personal reasons. For instance, the CEO may be the director's, uh, the director's golf buddy. In other words, this gap between perceived and actual costs suggests that CEOs are entrenched. Third result, I find that the degree of entrenchment is 73% lower. If you look at the second part of my, sub, in my, my sample compared to the earlier part, 
If I focus just on results from this more recent subsample, I find that shareholder value would increase only by 1.4% if we could somehow eliminate uh, entrenchment of CEOs holding all else equal. Now, the one interesting question that, that this paper of mine cannot address, and I think is, is, is kind of a million-dollar question, is how much entrenchment is optimal for shareholders? Zero entrenchment is surely not optimal because it's going to be hard for the firm to attract talented CEOs if those CEOs uh, anticipate a very high probability of being fired. So, so this is just one example of how models and theory can complement uh, facts like the one Steve's ha has presented. And, and with that, I'll.